who God is. Now, what God has revealed to us, and key word revealed, what we believe as Christ followers is that God has given us his revelation so that we don't have to uh, just tinker with speculation. And he's given us this wonderful book, or actually a set of books. It's, the Bible is actually like a bibliography. It's like a little library of 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. And through his servant Moses in the law, he gives us this insight and just taking, we could find many evidences and verses to create a robust theology or thinking of God's revelation to us, but the whole idea that God has spoken from outside of us. It's not just our own idea from within us, but God has actually spoken into history, into our existence. He has spoken from outside to the inside. And he describes it this way through his servant Moses, verse 29 of Deuteronomy 29, the secret things, meaning there are things that we wouldn't know unless God revealed them to us. These secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed, meaning God has certainly given us revelation. Yes, it is penned through uh, human beings that were inspired by the Spirit, but it, these are His words, His thoughts that we would not have any idea of unless He decided to reveal them to us by His will. And these things that are revealed, revelation, belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. He's revealed Himself first through the Old Testament, through the prophets and the law and the Psalms, and now ultimately in the New Testament through Jesus. The Old Testament was pointing towards, predicting, foretelling, looking forward to this man Jesus, and Jesus is the apex, the culmination, the, the climax of God's revelation. Which brings me to the second big question. Why don't I believe in Jesus of Scripture? If God's revelation is the focal point, is this man Jesus, and as the gospel is being proclaimed, being offered to you today, Christian or not, Christian, every day we need to re-abide. We need to come to Christ again and, and declare our faith and walk by faith, live by faith. And again, as I said in the introduction, or in just the, the uh, prelude, times when we go astray, times when we sin again, underneath that sin is some unbelief. And also to my non-Christian friend sitting here today, why don't you believe in Jesus of Scripture? And I think today's Scripture shows us three reasons. First, we find difficulty and, and uh, a willingness to believe in Jesus because first, he challenges my story. He challenges my narrative. Second, he challenges my rule. Third, he challenges my lovers. Now, what do I mean by that? And just to create some tension here, even your pastor, Albert, I have many illicit, adulterous lovers in my heart. What could I mean by that? I know it sounds scandalous. Just wait and see. But you, all of us here, are not too far from that as well. So let's dive into the text. First, he challenges my story. Picking up in verse 1. Now when they had passed through, this is Paul and Silas and whoever was traveling with them, they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. To our friends who appreciate maps and, and just more concreteness, I apologize. It's the one thing I forgot to insert to the slides today. I know I'll hear it from my wife. 
but that's okay. There's grace for me there too. But so just the, the main point is this. Um, Thessalonica was a major city in the Roman Empire. And we see here Paul and Silas and his band passing through these smaller cities. And here we get a sense of, of God's great bigger story as well. God has a strategy. God has an overarching purpose. And so in their minds, it made sense to go, and if you follow Paul's journeys, he always visited a strategic major city. Why? Because if the gospel took root in those hub cities, those major cities in the Roman Empire, then from there it would proliferate. From there it would spread out. And this because also because God has an overarching story that he's unfolding, building his kingdom and the gospel spreading. And so they came to Thessalonica from where we get, if you know the New Testament, First and Second Thessalonians, these, that is the city that uh, Paul was writing that, those two letters to Christians in Thessalonica. And there was a synagogue of Jews there. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days. Now even the fact that that detail, Sabbath days, here we see that he would reason with them from the Scriptures. And so I imagine Paul, Luke doesn't afford us the exact detail of what was taught and what he reasoned, but even the whole idea of Sabbath. I imagine Paul pointing to Jesus as our true Sabbath. Sabbath simply means rest and being made holy as we rest in God. And so even the whole idea of Sabbath is a great story of God. The whole book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, is about God establishing our Sabbath rest in Christ once and for all in eternity. And that's a storyline. That's one way to appear, to, to look at our lives. Do we wake up each and every day still striving and trying to create our own worth and climb up a certain ladder, moral ladder or, or a salary ladder or whatever to, to find some significance? Or can we say that we are resting in Christ, that we are embracing and living in our Sabbath? So imagine that this would have been one thing that he was addressing with his Jewish brothers. And it says here that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. When we read that he reasoned with them, I want you to think of a TED Talk. If you've ever seen a TED Talk, they have time limits. They have 10 minutes to 20 minutes but usually I've never seen a TED Talk longer than 20 minutes. And in those 20 minutes, that speaker is giving his utmost effort, his, his home run, grand slam effort to convince people of what he or she is speaking of, that it, is, it has truth to it, that it can add value to your life. And so imagine Paul wrestling with minds and affections and wills that way, presenting the gospel, presenting Jesus this way. And we see that he's reasoning with them from the scriptures. When we see the word scriptures, I want that to, to signal for you God's story. When you look at the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, what does it signal? Does it signal rules? Does it signal just insights and little tidbits of wisdom? What it first needs to signal overall is that this is God's story, how he is unfolding his story in time, how he is involved with creation and humanity, and how he is writing his story, and how the story, again, climaxes, concludes in this person, Jesus. And so Paul, the Spirit is using Paul to present God's story, 
and it challenges the, these listeners' story. And we see this uh, going, jumping to verse 10. Now, jumping to verse 10, Paul and his gang had moved on from Thessalonica to Berea. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas by night to Berea because there was some uh, uprising and commotion going on in Thessalonica. The Jews there, they did not receive this revelation well. And jumping to verse 11, Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. Now, what could Luke have meant that these Jews here in Berea were more noble? There's a double entendre going on here. First, it just means their class. These Jews were in a higher class. And at that time, in this time in history, intelligence and a reasoning ability, generally more than our times today, matched up to, paralleled the class that you were in as well. Basically, if you're smarter and more savvy and so forth, and you could, you could manipulate your resources and so forth and, and, and make a place for yourself, take life by the horns, you could do something more for yourself if you're in that noble social stratosphere. But it's a double entendre because certainly there are people who weren't in that class who were very logical, who were very smart as well. And so here it's also speaking to their hearts, the condition of their hearts, that they were more open, that they were more uh, genuinely seeking out truth and understanding. And so much so that they received the word with all eagerness. Eagerness. Now let me try to illustrate what Luke meant here by eagerness by its opposite. Uh, I went to Trinity College when I was at University of Toronto. There's a little picture of it. And, and I spent much time in the library there. And I distinctly remember one conversation with one of my friends. Uh, we had gone to high school together, and then we happened to be at the same college. And we were studying together, and it just happened. And this is uh, just post my, where grace just awakened me. Uh, the gospel finally just got a full hold, and I completely surrendered to Christ. And, and I was so eager to share, and uh, to share with my friend John, uh, what had happened in my life. And at first he was like curious, and he was entertaining me, obliging me. And as I explained this gospel story, basically in, in synopsis, uh, creation, fall, redemption, and glorification, sanctification, glorification, just those pillars and big chapters in God's redemptive story, his immediate reaction after about five to ten minutes of unpacking all that, he literally just in my face and, and was laughing. That's crazy, Albert. That is ridiculous. And that was, I mean, maybe he felt close enough to me as a friend that he could just be raw and honest. But, but that's, I'm saying, I'm giving that as an illustration of the exact opposite of what it means to be eager. Someone who is hungering to, to find this greater story in, within which they can fit themselves and find meaning, the, the meaning that they've been looking for for their lives the whole time. And with this eagerness, they were examining. This word examining has the nuance of forensics. Of, of If you watch CSI or if you're into crime stories and so forth, people with skill and knowledge to come and carefully observe the details, to uh, brush away the dust, to pull up fingerprints, basically with, with acute uh, observation 
and attention to detail, examining and studying to find a conclusion. And so they were forensically examining God's story, the scriptures, the big story daily. Now this isn't just for people who are searching for Christ. Here is an an application for all Christians every day. We're meant to continue to examine the scriptures daily, daily. And every day as we're attuned to the spirit, the gospel, and Jesus will be challenging our story. And so we see here in verse 12 that many of them, therefore, this is in Berea now, many of them therefore believed or literally placed their faith, forsaking all, they trusted him. They believed Jesus. And Luke here, now notice this detail, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now that's got to make you scratch your head. Why does Luke include this curious detail? And there are a few things going on there. First, they were Greek, meaning non-Jew. Second, they were women. And in that time, women's equality was struggling much more than, than it does. It still struggles today, but a time where women, it was very difficult to be found in high standing. And right there as well, attention, they're not only women who normally be marginalized, but women of high standing who, even though they're in high standing, still feeling the tension. I've made it this high, this far, but still not being completely recognized. And of the people that believed, that were willing to have their story challenged, imagine this group of women who are saying, no, I'm not going to just surrender everything I fought for. I'm not going to surrender everything I worked so hard for. I'm, I've found some worth here in a society that naturally marginalize, marginalizes me. But as they hear this gospel story, finding a worth, finding a place that is even more precious, more beautiful, that gives them more intrinsic beauty than everything they could have strived for. And so Luke points out this detail to show first, A, that this is the dynamic of the gospel, that it challenges our personal stories. But second, as we enter into the gospel story and find ourselves in God's great story, that that is where we find our greatest worth, our highest standing, as we are willing to humble ourselves and forsake all and trust Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. So an action point. How can I turn to Jesus and live by faith? This is for you and me in 2018 now. How how can I live this out? How can I put this into daily concrete action? First, daily embrace. Daily embrace your new identity. We're all about news here. The gospel overflowing into a new culture, a new identity, uh, sorry, a new community, uh, a new city. But part of that is a new identity. Daily embrace your new identity as a beloved child of God in Christ. We need to daily embrace this, daily turn this on again because we so easily forget. Just to try to illustrate it and almost hold us to accountability. Uh, Perhaps you've heard of method acting and there's some actors out there. This is Christian Bale. You might know him from Batman, The Dark Knight, but 
This is a scene where he has the muscle. Uh, it's a scene from American Hustle, and he had gained some 40 pounds of muscle just for this role. But there are actors like Christian Bale who are so intense, so serious about their roles that they actually put themselves into a real circumstance uh, of what their role is calling for. And so another movie, I forget the title of the movie, but he was playing this uh, heroin addict, and so he starved himself. He literally starved himself. And so notice the, the muscular version of him, and then beside that, the very sickly skinny, skin and bones. And uh, an article I read said he almost came to the point of death, and his doctors were warning him, you have to stop this. I know you're taking your acting seriously, but you have to stop this. Now, these are just people that are acting, and they're willing to put themselves in this reality for a paycheck. To perhaps he didn't even win an Oscar from that role. How much more should we as Christians? Now, I'm not saying to act. This is, see, acting is from the outside in, we're trying to put ourselves into a certain situation. But now, as you have placed your faith in Christ and the Spirit indwells you, it's from the inside out, this reality. We're supposed to be, I'm making a term up on the spot, method living, you know, living out. The reality of the gospel, your new identity that you are a child of the living God because of Christ. But secondly, he doesn't only challenge our story, he challenges our rule, my rule. Jumping back to verse 6, I'm jumping back and forth because first part, Luke wants to see us to see the disbelief, the unbelief of the Jews in Thessalonica. And then he's comparing them uh, to the belief of the Barians. And so back to verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers who were uh, comrades of, of Paul and Silas. And they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, the city's rulers, the worldly rulers, the worldly politics, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. What does Luke want us to notice? He wants us to notice that when we walk in grace, when we walk as genuine Christ followers, at some point, our rule of faith will grate up against and will disturb worldly rule. Political rule, but also the rule of our friends' hearts, our spouses' hearts who don't believe just unbelievers' hearts, the rule in their own heart, because the gospel, what it does, it challenges, challenges our rule. Jumping to verse 8, and the people in the city, authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. If we live, if we live by the New Testament gospel ethic, at some point, in Toronto, it will, it will, it will disturb Toronto. If you are obedient and genuine and living out the ethic that Jesus Christ calls us to, it will disturb the rule that is out there. It will. But almost cynically, look at the solution in verse 9. Basically, bottom line was money again. And when they, meaning the city authorities, had taken money and, as security 
from Jason and the rest. And here we're getting the idea that it was an exorbitant amount, and so Jason couldn't just foot the bill. They had to gather from that little church that was forming, saying, we, we, we need to gather as much money so that they'll put us, give us basically bail. And so the rule of the world is, is the bottom line, greed, money, material wealth. And the gospel challenges us in that as well. Verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too. If my memory serves me correctly, it's about 50 kilometers apart. So walking or, I don't know, riding, if they had horses, they probably didn't have horses, but they heard, they got wind that the gospel was spreading, and so something was triggered in them, an anger, that they were willing to go all the way down to Berea And they came there too, notice, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And so again, these Jews in Thessalonica angered at the gospel because now the gospel is not only challenging their story, but what did they do? They caused a head-on conflict, a duel between the rule of the gospel. And they know, at least they're smart in this sense, uh, street smart, they know, okay, let's stir up the crowds, let's agitate and stir up the crowds, the rule of the city, to cause them to be at odds again, to to battle it out. And so much so, verse 14, that the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. See, God, he, he doesn't intersect in our lives in a bubble. He doesn't pull Christians out of the world before eternity, before the new heaven and new earth, and place us in a bubble. We have to live out our faith. We have to grind out our faith in a very real, unbelieving world. So consider this thought. The Christian mission will inevitably grate against the world's politics. Why? Because the Christian mission is to anticipate an alternative and competing eternal kingdom. Furthermore, The Christ of Christian mission is the king who will ultimately subvert every other king. And and this author here doesn't just mean a political king, but every little king in our hearts. It goes without saying then that earthly power, earthly power brokers will inevitably feel threatened. So again, an action point. How can I turn to Jesus and live by faith? First, be confident. Be confident in God's final rule. If you're like me, I mean, just even yesterday, I was really discouraged. Yesterday morning, I was spending some time with non-Christian friends. And, and to, my, to any non-Christian friends here today, I don't mean this disrespectfully at all, I get it. If you choose not to believe, that's, that's your choice, and you've made your conclusion. But what discourages me is, is as, as, and for non-Christian friends here who have Christian friends, perhaps you've even come on the arm of a Christian friend today, we believe we have the best offering for you. We have the best gift to give you. And when we see that you're uninterested, it, it breaks our hearts. 
It breaks our hearts. And you can get discouraged. God, if we really believe that there's an eternity and there are only two destinies, forever with you in your love or forever under your wrath. And to just put it out there, to say the politically taboo word, hell, it's politically incorrect, that there's only eternity with Christ and his loving rule or in hell. We get discouraged. Is this worth it to keep fighting this good fight and to keep sharing when people aren't interested? But I think a takeaway from this passage for you and me today is don't tire in being confident that God will rule one day completely and over all. To the Christ follower, consider this thought. Outside of Christ, and to our non-Christian friend here today, outside of Christ, it was impossible for you to ultimately win. Sure, you can have victories, little victories in this life, whatever that victory is for you. But God one day will bring time to an end. We'll all stand before him in judgment. And outside of Christ, it will be impossible, impossible for you to win. But now, in Christ, it is impossible for you and me, for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, to ultimately lose. A second practical application, how can I turn to Jesus and live by faith? Daily submit your will to God's goodness then, to his rule, his good rule. Daily submit your rule to him. Just some quick little tidbits, but wonderful, just powerful little punchy promises from Scripture and ways to live this out first. Proverbs 16, 9. We make our plans, but the Lord directs our steps, meaning God's rule. If we've surrendered our life to him, his rule will reign. And you can be confident that as you go about your day, he will guide you towards his goodness. Jesus' Gethsemane prayer. If you're ever at loss for words and prayer, just pray Jesus' prayer in the garden. Not my will. God hears what my heart's desire is, but not my will, but yours be done. Romans 12, 1 to 2, in view of God's mercy, offer up your lives, your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual act of worship. And no longer be conformed to the patterns of the world, but by the renewing of your mind, be transformed. And then you'll be able to test and approve God's perfect and pleasing will. I love 1 Corinthians 15.10. This is Paul wrestling, letting the gospel still challenge, rule in his own life. He says, I was the least of all the apostles, but I worked harder than all of them. But it wasn't me. It was God's grace. But his grace was not without effect in me. And it's a picture of saying, God, here's my will, my ambition, but I surrender all that. Let your grace consume my life and let your grace energize me and work itself out. So let's wrap this up. Third big question then, why, why wouldn't I believe in Jesus? And I want to answer this first negatively and then positively. First negatively because he challenges our lovers. One way God presents his big story in scripture from Genesis to Revelation is that he is the faithful lover, 
Jesus is the faithful groom pursuing his love, the church. But all of us have committed adultery, spiritual adultery, and went after other lovers. We've chased after other small, lowercase g gods and made idols of of the good gifts he's given us and creation and so forth. But what the gospel does is he challenges our lovers. And where do I see this? When the gospel come and challenges the Jews in Thessalonica, verse five, but these Jews were jealous. This word jealous here in the original Greek, it carries the notion of, of covetousness, idolatry. What is jealousy? Jealousy is feeling threatened with the loss of something or someone you love. And so we're not given the exact reason, but these Jews, they felt jealous, maybe because they had friends and family who were turning to another religion in their eyes. Maybe they felt uh, insecure because they're losing membership from their synagogue, which means less offering, which means less money for the new renovation that they wanted to do to their synagogue. Who knows what it was? Who knows what it was? Their tradition, but they felt jealous they felt threatened with the loss of something or someone they loved. And so we could reread this verse, but the Jews were covetous. There's something in their heart. The gospel is challenging the things or people that they so dearly held on to and in actuality that they made greater than God and salvation and forgiveness of sins through Christ alone. And so to put it differently, these Jews were idolatrous. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus, what he does is he diminishes. He diminishes. He makes our other loves, we realize that they're so small. They're so petty. Why was I so foolish to go after these other loves? And how does he diminish our other loves? With his love. His greatest, perfect love. And so we see in verse 3, Paul He is explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. This idea of explaining and proving, that's what the preachers at Trinity Grace Church try to do. What Paul was doing in explaining, it means to open up. He was opening up the scriptures. And that's why we we place high value in just trying to work through verses and, and through books and opening up the scriptures to you. Now this word here, proving, it's a neat word. It could also mean placing food in front of someone. And the idea of proving here is is a taste test. Taste this, and I'm going to prove to you. Once you eat it, once you taste it and try it, you're going to realize it's so good. You're going to want to keep coming back to this. And that's the idea of proving. And that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. It was necessary for him to rise from the dead What do these things mean? What was necessary? First, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer for our sins. That's the only way you and I could be found in the love of God again. This is just the old, old story, but the beautiful story that we'll never grow tired of, the basic, simple gospel, that Christ took your place on the cross for your sins, taking your punishment. And he had to rise from the dead as well because if he didn't rise from the dead, then the consequences of sin, meaning death, would never be canceled. He had to defeat sin sin and all its consequences as well. And Paul says this Jesus, now this historical human being, Jesus, he is the Christ. 
We're all looking for a Christ. You might not use that term, but you are looking for Christ, which means anointed one, chosen savior. That's what it means. We're all looking for some kind of Christ. But the gospel comes and challenges every one of us. The Christ that you have made Christ, it it will fail you on that judgment day. But this Jesus, he is the one true Christ who can save you. Now just try to think of it this way. Um, Think of a best friend or think of a fiance or your spouse. Now imagine this best friend or fiance or spouse that the only way that they could become your best friend, the only way you can experience the deep, deep love and benefits of that spouse or fiance or best friend is that it was, it's necessary for them to have died first and then rise again from the dead. It puts a whole new spin to the preciousness, to, to, to the treasure of that deep, deep love. Just imagine literally someone in your life in order to have them in your life, that it was necessary for them to die and rise again. So that's an angle to this whole notion that Paul is trying to get at, that it was necessary. And so what's the result? Jesus' love, it won them over. And so verse four, even in Thessalonica where there were these unbelieving Jews, even amongst them, they were persuaded and joined. Persuaded and joined. They were convinced from the very core. That's what it means. But it's not just a Gnostic thing. It's not just a mental, I I just think it and I believe it in my head. No, they joined. They put it into action. And so I just wrap it up with the words of Jeremiah Ingalls' hymn, I love thee. He expresses this so well, the the whole, the, 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 the sentiment, the, not just a fluffy sentiment, but just the whole the, the driving force of this passage. I love thee, I love thee, I love thee, my Lord. I love thee, my Savior. I love thee, my God. I love thee, I love thee, as if he couldn't say it enough. And that thou dost know, but how much I love thee, my actions will show, persuaded and joining. O Jesus, my Savior, with thee I am blessed. My life and salvation, my joy and my rest. Thy name be my theme, and thy love be my song. Thy grace shall inspire both my heart and my tongue. O who's like my Savior? He's heaven's bright king. He smiles and he loves me and helps me to sing. I'll praise him, I'll praise him with notes loud and clear while rivers of pleasure my spirit shall cheer. Amen.